Hi, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Play theme music? Okay. Hi, James. Welcome back. So once again, we are recording in person. You are actually sitting next to me, breathing on me. Hi, James. Hello, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it was your wife's birthday recently. It was, yes. And you showed up for tonight's recording with three slices of cake or pie for her. And that was just delightful. I, of course, pounced on the tiramisu. I had it. It was delicious. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. And we were able to catch up and uh, socialize. And now we're an hour late into recording. And I can I can feel the anger like seething off of you that I, I've delayed everything by an hour. By, but you can't get mad at me because I brought tiramisu and uh, key lime pie and a chocolate pie. Yes, yes. So... I should explain, so we are, this episode is just a find-out sequel to our last episode. I think we should keep going. If you're listening to this, you've probably already listened to one episode of this, except unless you're one of those horrible people who listens to podcasts backwards as you go through the app, uh, the way that Apple encourages you to do. In which case, I suppose, should we reintroduce who McKendrick is and what all this is? All right, very quickly, we are, no, you can't do it. Listen to the first half of this episode first. <laughs> listen to the first half, uh, or the, listen to part one of McKendrick's Rules. There we explain who Sandy McKendrick is, what movies he directed, how he ended up writing 41 Rules of Advice, and how he passed them on to his students at CalArts and then through to the rest of the world. And we examined a bunch of them last episode, and we'll examine a bunch of them in this episode. This is, I think we're just having a lot of fun with these. We're, it's a chance to, this is sort of like a super supergroup episode where we are blowing through because we have McKendrick's rules to form a framework we are getting to cover a lot of advice that we've never covered before on the show and we're having lively debate about it let's go ahead and move on to number 12 the start of your story is usually the consequence of some backstory i.e. the impetus for progression in your narrative is likely to be rooted in previous events often rehearsals of what will happen in your plot I think this is excellent advice. I mean, this is one version of saying, start your story as late as possible. Don't start from scratch is another way of saying this, which is a general piece of advice that I often give. I cite Jaws as a counterexample of this, how Jaws is an example where it's like, there is no problem, and then there is a problem. But mm -hmm. in most movies, there's a long-standing problem that has reached an untenable point, and that's when the story begins. It's very rare to have a movie like Jaws in which there basically is no problem. There's a little bit of a problem in that he's not respected in town. But it's rare to have a movie like Jaws in which it's basically you go from nothing going on to something going on. Yeah, children's movies generally start with no problem. Like, there's no problem at the beginning of Moana. There's no problem at the beginning of oh. Frozen. It's they've like been... Happy Village in all, both cases. Happy Village. No, and they've then been we running see... out of fish for some time. Moana's been very unhappy. For... Moana's never she... been satisfied. Mm, and... In a way, she's kind of like, oh, I, I, I want to generally get out of here. But like, she's kind of generally happy in the place where she is. Right? She's not, like, dying to leave. She's not dying to leave, but she's She's, she's not really the Luke Skywalker level of frustration. She's just kind of like... Oh, wouldn't it be nice? And her grandmother is telling her a different way. You know, they get, generally children's movies. You know, things have been okay. Beauty been and the rotting. Beast. Rot has been seeping into that place for a long time. I'd say most stories, but yeah, I mean, certainly Disney movies. Generally, are be, children's yeah, movies. Children's you start movies. with a happy village, yeah. and then some bad thing happens. Right. Finding Nemo. They're all hanging out. They're a bunch of fish. They're happy. Then right. the fish get killed. Right? right. It usually starts with in Dan Harmon's parlance, the hero is in a zone of comfort. 
Right, you know, but, um, which I generally disagree with. I think well, that what, I, I, what he should say is a hero is in he's comfortable with a untenable situation. Yeah, like, like with an uh, with an unresolved I contradiction. Say, I would not say comfortable, but I would say that you know the hero is growing increasingly frustrated with an untenable situation. Right, is the way I say you begin. You know, I talk about a little bit later in here about the apartment, and the apartment could have began with like you know, oh, I'm someone who wants to get ahead in this company, and then somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want to use your apartment to have a affairs with other women if you lend me the keys to your apartment i'll get you an executive washroom key and he's like okay i'll go with it that's the way that movie could have begun mm -hmm. instead that movie begins once the situation has been going on for a long time and has now become untenable and now he's forced to spend a night alone on the street and he can't stand it anymore and that's not a short movie that movie is a long movie but it begins as late into the story as possible as it can with a lot of backstory that there's never any flashback we never mm -hmm. have any flashback to how they got there but we just catch up as we go as to all the backstory that's happened before this scene that we just catch up just in snatches of dialogue as we're moving forward through the story. I think that's an excellent story in which it's a good example of not starting from scratch. Generally, this is good advice. And maybe one of the reasons it's good advice is because he's not simply lashing out against people that he's frustrated with. <laughs> all right, let's move on to number 13. Number 13, coincidence may mean exposition in the wrong place i.e. if you establish the two convenient circumstances before they become dramatically necessary, then we feel no sense of coincidence. Use coincidence to put characters into trouble, not out of trouble. This, I, I first heard this before I read McKendrick's Rules, I heard John August say something like this, and I completely agreed with it then, and then I realized he got it from here. I think this is an excellent point. I think this is something that's genuinely helpful. I don't know if I can phrase it any better than he does. If you plant the information in the correct order, then it won't seem like a coincidence that helps the hero at an all-too-convenient time if you have set it up properly beforehand. And it's okay to have coincidences that make things harder on the hero. Viewers, readers have no trouble with that at all. They just don't like coincidences that help the hero. I think this is an excellent point. Yeah, I, I'm fine with this. A great way to fix problems in your story is to just reveal information in a different order, and then something that seems overly convenient can seem entirely acceptable to an audience. Oh, definitely. I think the best thing to take from this is like if you're going to have a coincidence, have it be something that makes things worse for the hero and not yeah. better for the hero. Because that's like, oh no! Like they didn't even merit this setback, and yet just because of coincidence they got it. Oh. Like, yes. I, yeah, I mean, that, that's great. But yeah. I mean, I, I've always said that one of the greatest adapted screenplays of all time is the first Spider-Man movie and how they took 120 issues of Spider-Man and they did it, but they were like, okay, there were lots of coincidences in Spider-Man and we can only have one in the movie and it's got to be a coincidence. But so the original Spider-Man story has this huge coincidence in it that the crook that he decided not to arrest then goes back and kills his uncle. Mm -hmm. And this was a huge coincidence that was meaningful. This mm -hmm. was like a coincidence that was a bad coincidence for him and that had a greater meaning about fate and about the way the world works and about, oh, the bitter irony of this. But they couldn't have that coincidence in the movie because they were going to do another similar coincidence that originally happened years later in the comics where it turned out that his best friend's father was the Green Goblin. His mm. best friend's father was his ultimate villain. Another banned coincidence, which is fine. We would mm -hmm. have accepted both coincidences fine because they're banned for the hero, but they just couldn't have two big coincidences that big. Unlike Sailor Ms. Rob, which has mm -hmm. like 10 huge coincidences in it. 
They're like, we need to have a modernly structured movie with only one big coincidence. So they came up with a brilliant solution for having the crook who he lets go kill his uncle without it being a coincidence. And because his uncle was waiting to pick him up outside when he lets him go instead of the same crook making his way to his house months later, I think it is one of the most beautiful adaptations I've ever seen. Anyway, um, but a good example of how to eliminate coincidences and keep them satisfying to an audience. Okay, all right, let's move on to... Passivity. We are at point number 14, passivity. Again, all in caps. Passivity is a capital crime in drama. So I think this is another thing that we disagree about. We did a whole episode about this. Can we skip it? Yes. Like, I did a whole episode talking about like positive passivity, and at the end of that episode you said, I think that you've won me over to your point. And of course now, weeks after, months after, you're like, oh, I, I, you know, of course we disagree. But like in the heat of the moment, you said that you agreed with me. There's something called Stockholm Syndrome, where when you've got me captive, then <laughs> I begin to sympathize with my captor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and then it's only when I'm later, I have to go through a whole Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt thing where I then eventually realize that I was forced to agree with you. Or, or maybe you're just I like so have. stubborn that like I make a good point, but the, the minute I leave the room, your brain <laughs> frantically erases the idea that I could ever be right and you'd be wrong. There's a literal record needle scratch sound every time you leave the room. Um, <laughs> All right, let's move on to number 15. A character who is dramatically interesting is intelligent enough to, all caps, think ahead. He or she has not only thought out present intentions, but has foreseen reactions and possible obstacles. Intelligent characters anticipate and have counter moves prepared. I think this is excellent advice. I think that this is a huge difference between good stories and bad stories. For adults. I think for children's stories, I think uh, children would be alienated by a character who is too canny in this way. Hmm. I mean, certainly the Harry Potter books get a lot of good drama. He blunders from one ahead. situation to another. I mean, he is impulsive. and Which is good. And I think yeah, you want to have an like, impulsive we, hero. We would prefer somebody who's impulsive to somebody who's intelligent, anticipating, and having counter moves prepared. I think that that is something that adults like. But even but, he, but even Indiana Jones is impulsive. He throws himself into situations not knowing what's going to happen next, and then he just kind of frantically improvises. I think that we generally prefer frantic improvisers to people who are like chess masters who have several moves planned ahead. I don't know about this advice. Yeah, I agree that having a character, a character can be off-putting if it is too clear that they are thinking things out in advance and preparing counter moves. That's, I we think like it's frantic good. improvisers. We don't like people who think ahead. I think that's too broad. I think we love it in a scene when I'm currently reading the 1980s James Bond novels. Mm-hmm. And James Bond, it's, you know, as I'm a James Bond fan, James Bond fans always like to joke about how he's like the world's worst spy, how he's just completely incompetent. And anybody with even a smidgen of proper tradecraft would never get into all the trouble that he gets into. Like so many times in those fucking books, in, in the 80s books by John Gardner, he's blunders into a trap. And then I'm like, oh, and then it's going to be revealed, right, that he was thinking three moves ahead and that mm-hmm. this wasn't actually a trap. And he's going to go like, aha, you know, I pretended to blunder into your trap so that then you would reveal your plan and it never is the fucking case <laughs> and well, it's, like it's just an absolute blunder i really wish he was had some counter moves planned yeah, no, i think he would be like, a much more appealing character it's just like the, the just like the, the same mistake of just like the villain saying at the halfway point ah you captured me you thought 
that's you you won but in fact i wanted to be captured and i think like, we don't find that satisfying we want but you we well, want to, we, we don't want to be the hero to be three moves ahead of us we maybe want them at maximum to be one move ahead of us you love the tom cruise mission impossible movies talk about counter moves talk about someone who is always thinking three or four steps ahead now this brings us to the mission impossible rule which is that when they originally pitched Mission Impossible, when Bruce Keller originally pitched Mission Impossible to CBS, they were like, obviously you get to the first commercial break and the plan seems to go wrong. And then at the end of the commercial break, you reveal, aha, but that was actually part of their whole plan from the beginning that they meant to get caught there. And then, but they're like, okay, but the second time you do that at the commercial break in the middle of the show or in the next commercial break, something has to actually go wrong and they have to actually (laughs) improvise. Because we don't want to watch the entire show just be a series of pre-planned counter moves. Very quickly, they overwhelmed that note from CBS. And by the time Peter Graves was on the show, the entire episode would go according to clockwork. And But I would say that maybe the all-time greatest episode of Mission Impossible is The Mind of Stephen Miklos, where Peter Graves was up against the Soviet Union's version of Peter Graves. He was uh, Jim Phelps was up against the Soviet Union's version of Jim Phelps, and they each were thinking like fifty moves ahead, <laughs> and they were in. Then they were knowing that the person they were up against would be doing all of the same figuring that they were doing, and it was one of the most brilliantly written hours of TV of all time. So I think that it can be. Yeah, it sounds like it something that a freak like you appealing. would enjoy. <laughs> but um, most people like people who are improvising off of. Like, they, like frantically at the same rate as the audience is and not somebody who has a whole thing in their head before the scene even begins and is simply falling out their plan. I agree. I think that I think that audiences want a combination. I think they want I think they want some thinking ahead and then they want at a certain point you have to improvise. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Let's move on to number 16, narrative drive, all in caps. The end of a scene should include a clear pointer as to what the next scene is going to be. Excellent advice. I see this can be as simple as ending on somebody saying, what else can go wrong? And then cutting to the bad guys. You must rewrite your outlines until the list of events no longer goes, and then, and then, but rather, and so, and so. Or as Aristotle would say, until post hoc becomes profiter hoc. As soon as you say, as Aristotle would say, everybody falls asleep. <laughs> so don't do that ever. But like, yeah, I, I think that, but I don't think everything never necessarily needs to be like causally related to the next scene. Like, this happens and then therefore no. that happens. It could be thematically related or here's another thing that's happening in parallel that we see or, or whatever. It, it, it doesn't have to hook up in a mechanical way. It yeah. could even in a movie be like one person like puts, I don't know, let's say puts down an apple. We cut to another person is picking up an apple in a different place, right. you know, and something is happening. You, you can make these. That's dumb. But yeah. you, you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't have to be so mechanical it could be a little more thematic well that's why i say obviously the most direct way of doing this is to have a scene end on as i talk about my first book we're behind the poles what are we gonna do and then the next scene is knocking on doors you know Mm -hmm. and it's like that's the most direct way to get from one scene to another that's the most direct way to go from post hoc to propter hoc but you can also very much indirectly go like just end a scene on someone going what else can go wrong and then cut to the villain and, mm-hmm. you know, they may not even, the hero may not know about the villain, and the villain may not know about the hero. They might just be working across purposes without even knowing each other exist. But it's sort of, you know, it's sort of forced to jump from one to the other by going, what else can go wrong? But it's good to do something that makes us feel like a story that's like, and so, and so, and so, right. rather be, than, and then, and then, and then. It can then. be thematic-related, rela- in which it's not clear immediately how it's related. Like, 
the scene right after, I keep talking about Star Wars, after Obi-Wan Kenobi explains the Force to Luke, uh-huh. it's the first time we really hear about the Force. Uh-huh. The very next scene is Vader with all of his generals, and right. he chokes somebody using the Force. So right. you say, oh, here's a good version of the Force. Oh, wait, is this old man just crazy? Oh, wait, the Force is real, and a bad guy is using it. It's kind of like both, like, oh, God, the Force is real. It's like, wait, how great is this Force anyway? Who is this? If you're watching the movies for the first time, like, who is this crazy old man? And what's he getting Luke into? You, you know what I mean? Right. Like, like and, and so it's thematically related, but it's not like somebody's saying, what could go wrong? Next thing is, like, something going wrong. You know right. what I mean? It's it, 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 it takes a couple beats to get to the point where you say, oh, that is kind of related. And maybe even as a child or even as an adult, you don't immediately make that connection. But you kind of subconsciously make the connection between the two scenes. Right. Yes. So, Excellent. And so what I mean to say is that don't follow these rules so directly that it has to be one line and then you go to the next scene. The next line is completely mechanically and clearly related. You can allow some space for it to breathe and just have the two scenes thematically related without having to have it cut from one line to another line, or one person puts down an apple, the next person picks up the apple. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's totally the apple thing is a totally example of like ah, these scenes aren't connecting. What can I do? I've got a brilliant idea. No, no, don't do that. Okay, let's go on to number seventeen. Ambiguity does not mean lack of clarity. Ambiguity may be intriguing when it consists of alternative meanings, each of them clear. No. No? You disagree? I thought you would like this one. No. You know, ambiguity, he's saying this is good. He's he's saying that it's okay to be James Kennedy. It's okay to have ambiguity. No, but he says, he says okay, ambiguity means like there's four or five specific things that it could be, and each of them are clear. You know, and I think like, well, that was what I said. I then linked to a piece where I, I then say, if you've created a world where anything can happen, you've messed up, you should create a world in which one of five things might happen. No, he says... Ambiguity may be intriguing when it consists of alternative alternative meanings, each of them clear, each of them. So there's a couple specific ones, and it could right. be any one of them. But I don't think there have to be two or three distinct choices, and we're given a clear moment of decision. I think things can be like, wait, what did that mean? Like in Twin Peaks, there's a white horse. Leland Palmer's wife, right before we see that he's Killer Bob and he kills Maddie Ferguson, she is in a drugged-out haze, and she crawls down the stairs, and she sees a white horse. We never find out what that white horse means. Right. Um, we see it again in season three, but we still, we never, and they, I think, it's not like, oh, the white horse can mean A, B, or C. It's simply the white horse that she sees. Right. It's not an ambiguity. It's a... It's, it's a, a vision. It's a vision. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, like, or okay, what, what did Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation? What did he whisper to her? It's not like, oh, he could have said one, two, or three. It's like... <laughs> right. It's not a couple alternative things. It's just like, we don't know what he said. Right. So it's not a choice between a bunch of things. It's a literal unknowing. And right. so that's why I disagree with this. But what I was in the suitcase in Pulp Fiction? It wasn't two or three things that we all know what those alternatives are. It's simply utterly ambiguous. I think it's very clear what was in the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. What? The Holy Grail. It's the Holy Grail. Everybody looks at it. It's this glowing gold object and every, he looks at it like, is that what I think it is? It's something where you can just look at it and tell what it is. Mm-hmm. And the person's like, yes, it is. It's something where they've, they've been sent. I mean, the whole thing is 
Arthur, that you've got King Arthur has said... Matt is turning into me. This is great. <laughs> I love it when Matt turns into me. Bing Rames is King Arthur. He <laughs> says to Lancelot, who is John Travolta, he says, I want you to take care of my wife when I'm not around. Guinevere, yeah. And Guinevere gets injured in a joust, and a piece of the lance enters her chest. And Does that happen? In, yes. In Lamar to Arthur? In, I forget, you know, there's so many different tellings of the story, but in some telling of the story, this may just happen in Camelot. But she gets injured in a thing and gets something stuck in her chest. And mm. then Lancelot is so pure, he can save people by just touching them. Mm. And Lancelot touches Guinevere and saves her when she is almost killed in the joust. And so this all happens in Pulp Fiction. And Lancelot and Galahad, who is Samuel Jackson, both see the grail. But <laughs> Lancelot... Samuel Jackson is Galahad the Pure. Yes. Okay. He is purified by seeing the grail. So mm -hmm. he sees the grail and then decides to give up his life of violence, whereas Lancelot ha is already dead. Lancelot, we've already seen die in another scene, and is already he is too degraded by his he is too degraded by his sinning with Guinevere to be transfigured by the grail. And so he is not. I spent the entirety of the 90s trying to go like, this is such an obvious Grail story. This is such an this obvious... This is the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I've never heard you say something so bonkers in my life. And I'm utterly convinced I think it's totally true. It's totally true. It is... That is the Holy Grail in that suitcase. And at one point, I... In when the internet first started and the New York Times website was still small enough where they had a movie trivia thing on the New York Times website where somebody asked on a movie trivia thing what was in the suitcase and I gave my whole explanation and the world of people who would go to the New York Times website was so small that like I became like a celebrity and people were like going this is brilliant and the person who asked the question is like the answer I was looking for was an orange light bulb and tinfoil which is what was actually in there but I'm gonna give it to you anyway wow. why, why, why didn't you parlay that into becoming A.O. Scott I know I should have but I didn't that's great, but let's get back to the point. Which and please keep all that in. I'm keeping all that in. Um, but um, I I think that it's not about two or three specific alternate meanings that it could be. It could just be the unknown. Yes. No. I agree. I think that he is saying don't be afraid of ambiguity. But I agree that he is the rules in which he's allowing ambiguity are too limited. You yes. can have you can have ambiguity in other ways. But I think he is saying that ambiguity is not necessarily antithetical to good storytelling. Yeah. But then he true. goes ahead and redefines ambiguity in a way that's not ambiguous. Yes. Okay. Rule number eighteen: Comedy is hard. Which happened to be the last words of Edmund Keane, who was a comedic actor of the nineteenth century. Apparently, it says comedy plays best in the master shot. Comic structure is simply dramatic structure, but more so. And you'll note he had more so as two words, as Which opposed to correct. you are always criticizing me for saying more so as one word. Comic structure is simply dramatic structure, but more so. Neater, shorter, faster. Don't attempt comedy unless you are really expert in structuring dramatic material. So I think this is excellent advice. As someone who has written comedies and written dramas, it is, writing comedies is definitely harder. The structure is has to they do have the structure of a drama but then with just a lot added to it so you need to have you need to have a smaller plot so that you can add more jokes to it so that you can add more business to it and i think what he's saying is really excellent advice i mean i guess comedy is hard but comedy plays best in the master shot what does that mean what is a for people who don't know in the audience what is a master shot a master shot is generally when you shoot a scene you're going to shoot coverage where you get where you shoot the faces of the people involved and then you'll have the master shot where you shoot 
the whole scene wide to see the whole scene. And generally speaking, it is a rule in film school that you want comedy to play best in the master shot, that you don't want to have a series of close-ups for comedic business, especially if it's physical comedic business. The audience is going to want to see the whole business. They're not going to want to see it chopped up and shot in smaller shots. So it's kind of like an, like the same thing for like an action scene. Yeah. Like, you know, you want to see, like, the whole fight. You don't want to have, like, cut up like that. But, like, when they say comedy plays best in the master shot, like, when I think about modern comedy, like, I think about, like, I don't know, when Jim looks at the camera in the office, that's not a master shot thing, right? Like, I, I don't right. know if this... But, like, I mean, but if first Michael does a pratfall, then we're going to want to see the pratfall in the master shot and then cut to Jim, you know, looking on it in... Uh... And a coverage. I get it. So physical shot. comedy plays best in the yes, master shot. I would say physical comedy yeah. plays best in the master shot. So yeah, I think that that makes more sense. Like yeah. I, I just couldn't get what that meant. Okay, comic structure is simply dramatic structure, but more so. Neater, shorter, faster, fine. Don't attempt comedy until you're really expert in structuring dramatic material. I don't see how that is helpful. That seems like just like the kind of advice that stops people and doesn't help them. Like you don't have to. Have, like be you know have written a doll's house and be like Ibsen or have written like Macbeth and you're Shakespeare and like you've you've really nailed dramatic material before then you can graduate to finally doing comedy especially since most comedy is a young person's game and most funny stuff comes from people who are young and people you know as a rule get less funny as they grow older with you know some like, you know, a few exceptions um, the, the idea of like you have to wait to become a master before you attempt comedy seems like unhelpful and and anybody who is truly funny would just not pay attention to this i think that it is a good rule that it's good to know that comedy is hard it's good to know that comedy is deceptive it's tempting to think that oh i don't have it in me to write something traumatic i'll just toss up something comedic which is you know not the case at all <laughs> i don't think uh, that, i don't think anybody that approaches comedy with that the, the, people say I like funny stuff. I'm going to write something funny. Nobody goes to comedy because it's like the second best thing from drama. Most people who probably do comedy are probably like, no, I don't want to write Terms of Endearment. I want to write Caddyshack. Like they would be bored by Terms of Endearment. God, I'm really aging myself. And they want to write Caddyshack. Okay, they don't, they don't want to write, um, let's only age myself like 20 years in the past. They want to do old school. They don't want to do, I don't know, like some movie about the Iraq war. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's, I love how like, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to make these references up to date. I'm going to move them to the year 2006. Like, <laughs> well, you know, I'm trying to go to the last time James. that like, it, like we ever shared any kind of cultural <laughs> currency that everybody could get the, could get the idea. But I think that this is a useful thing for me to have heard as someone who has written, you know, full-length traumatic screenplays and full-length comedic screenplays, I, I at least feel validated by this advice. I feel like, oh, hell yeah, comedy needs to follow all the rules of drama. And I think that is 100% not true. Like, everybody loved Caddyshack. I don't like it, but, like, and everybody laughed at it, and that does not follow, like, the rules of drama. It's, it's like, random and, and weird. Like, comedy is a very anarchic form. Like, it's... It, it, it's it, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. There are exceptions. There are, I mean, I think that at the heart of Caddyshack, I, I only saw Caddy. Did I ever see all of Caddyshack? I may have just seen the Bill Murray scenes from Caddyshack. Well, forget Caddyshack. I'm looking beyond but... your face. I'm looking at Monty Python books. <laughs> and, like, Monty Python is not like, oh, good, we got really good at, you know, David Mamet stuff, and then we did Monty Python. There's a bunch of young 20-somethings who did something crazy, and then everybody laughed at it for years and years and years. They did not become masters of the dramatic form before they could attempt comedy. Well, certainly you look at the Monty Python movies, and they are... Uh... 
yeah, they're some of the weirdest structured movies that have ever been made. And um, more successful than probably a lot of the dramas that came from that era. Yeah. Like, nobody remembers those dramas. Everybody remembers Monty Python. So I, I wouldn't say no one remembers the dramas of okay. the 1970s. But, <laughs> but, but, like, but they, the God What Father? What are you even talking about? No, okay, but the, I, I, I bet more people know and care and have affection for Monty Python than Harold Pinter. Yes, I agree. No, you're right. You're right. You're you're demolishing this rule. Certainly, comedy can completely disregard the rules of drama. But I found that in order to write, I mean, saying that, how oh, it's easy. You just do like Money Python did. You know, that's not uh, that's, that's not what not, I said. Though that's not solid advice. I think that I'm using you know, it as a counterexample, <laughs> not is, as an example of what to do. Yes, given that it is hard to advise someone to be the next Money Python, it is easier to advise someone to learn how to write a dramatic screenplay and then make it funny than it is to write something that would not work dramatically and then make it funny. That's I'm sorry, much harder to writing do. a dramatic screenplay and then saying, oh, then I'll go back to it and make it funny sounds like a way to make the least funny thing possible. No, I disagree. I think that's a way, I think that's why most comedies are written. I mean, not a dramatic what? screenplay. Wait, Obviously not, you're not writing Places in the Heart, but you're writing, I'm also sticking to the 80s references <laughs> here. You're writing, but no, you've got to write. If you're writing a screwball comedy, then there has to be something real about this couple, you know, getting divorced and getting remarried. There's got to be a drama about a couple getting divorced and getting remarried that's buried inside all these jokes. Maybe we're talking about different kinds of comedy. Yeah. A comedy about people getting divorced and remarried that isn't not on its face a funny premise. Right. But a guy getting mistaken for Jesus, like Life of Brian, is a funny premise. You know what I mean? Like, like I think I think it's types of comedy, and I don't think that the type of comedy that like I particularly enjoy or is particularly durable. So obviously, you totally disagree with this advice. You say, of course, you should attempt comedy, uh, even when you are not really expert in structuring dramatic material. I think there is something good here. You know, my favorite comedies have a nugget of drama in them. Holy Grail and Life of Brian are not my favorite comedies. I, for ones that have the nugget of a dramatic story and then, and then oh, just a lot of jokes on top. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Let's go ahead and go on to number 19. The role of the antagonist, all in caps, may have more to do with the structure of the plot than the character of the protagonist. When you are stuck for a third act, think through your situations from the point of view of whichever characters oppose the protagonist's will. I think this is excellent advice. I think this is a key breakthrough a lot of people have to learn when they write, is that the villain's plan structures the movie or the novel or the whatever. In Die Hard, Hans Gruber has a plan. John McClane has no plan. John McClane is just reacting to Hans Gruber's plan, who has planned out the whole thing, and McClane is just reacting the entire time. Certainly if you look at a movie like Infinity War or whatever, if you listen to the commentary on the DVD to that, that's just entirely, Thanos is the hero, is the anti-hero of that story, and we are following him the entire time. It's funny, I point out, I was, was Battlestar Galactica still going when I did this series? Because I point out that the opening credits of Battlestar Galactica make it very clear that the villain's plan was the prime mover of the story, and the goal of the heroes came second, and I point out how in the opening credits of Battlestar Galactica it always end with, and they have a plan. Which, of course, it turned out they did not have a plan. And the writers, <laughs> the writers did not. <laughs> absolutely no idea. The writers had absolutely no idea what the villains really wanted. And the whole show fell apart. But, but it, uh, got, it got you, but it, it gave, made you feel, it gave you confidence yes. that the writers knew what they were doing. Yes, as long as they ended at every, the beginning of every episode by saying, and the villains have a plan, then we kept watching, uh, not knowing that that was a lie. I mean, maybe that's the case for, I mean, 
Die Hard or Marvel movies or whatever, like the, the action things. But I don't know if that's like true of like slice of life things. That there's some antagonist who has this plan. Oh yeah. That the, you know, I think if if you know you have like a I don't know, Robert Altman movie, which is like a bunch of people kind of, you know, you're looking at an ant farm of people just kind of, you know, going about their life. Yeah. I don't know, even like uh, Confederacy of Dunces, I don't know who the antagonist is who has a plan. I think that what you're saying is true for action movies and heists and superhero movies, but not generally for, for all movies or stories. I would agree. Yeah. It's going to be true a surprising number of times when you're writing something. I think it's entirely possible you're writing a comedy and you're going like, oh, it's the antagonist who is actually driving this. I think that you're going to have various things you could be writing where this could be true. It's not going to be true of everything. But I kind of like to look, uh, like you have a big DVD collection yeah. and look for examples. I'm looking at Raising Arizona. Who's the antagonist who has a plan that's driving everything? Well, no, they just get themselves into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I'm looking at Groundhog Day. There's no antagonist who's driving it. Like, a, true. A, you know, like I, I, I just, it's one of those pieces of advice that it sounds like, wow, this makes so much sense. Yeah. And you can think of a, a couple examples and so then you falsely universalize it. But in fact, it's not the case. And then if you were trying to write Groundhog Day and you had never written it before and you come across this piece of advice, like, then maybe I should make an antagonist who's actually trapping him in this day that never ends, right? And then we've ruined the movie. There you were know? several traps of the movie in which there was a witch doctor who cursed him. <laughs> cool. Glad they got rid of it. Glad they didn't follow the shitty advice for the, in this case. And they got rid of the antagonist who he's working against. Yes, but there was there was a little bit of push towards that. But, but, uh, I mean, but, but they, they made it good by ignoring that advice. <laughs> okay, so I disagree with this. Yeah, no, it's true. I think that depending on what movie you're writing, you could find that this is going to be helpful to you. But it's not always going to be helpful. Okay, should we go on to number 20? Yeah, I mean... Well, 20 and 21 are really not so much rules. They're just glossaries, uh, glossary entries. Um, I will go ahead and do them both at the same time. Uh, 20, protagonist, the central figure in the story, the character, quote, through whose eyes, end quote, we see the events. And then 21, antagonist, the character or group of figures who represent opposition to the goals of the protagonist. Wait, hold on. This this motherfucker got got credit for how many rules? <laughs> for, for 41 rules? But, like, two of the rules are just, like, glossary definitions? This is... I don't even think he ever declared these to be his 41 rules. I think this is just the way they were passed around by his students. But uh, yes, so we do not have to linger on these if they are just glossary definitions. But I think this is the idea of, is the protagonist the character through whose eyes we see the story? I talk about in my original piece about how I wrote this before they made the recent Great Gatsby movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, which I loathed. And, but my illustration for my piece was a picture of the Robert Redford Great Gatsby movie, which I also did not like very much. But I talk about how, as far as I'm concerned, the only way to really make a Great Gatsby movie is to eliminate Nick. And I feel like you, in a novel... Can you uh, explain to people who haven't read The Great Gatsby who Nick is? Nick Carraway? Okay, so in, you know, The Great Gatsby, they, we are seeing this sort of very sort of bland character who went to Yale and now is living out on Long Island trying to make it as a stockbroker and discovers this, you know, entrancing neighbor, Jay Gatsby, who is, throws all these parties and has this burning desire to reunite with his lost love, who also lives in one of these Long Island mansions. But Nick, our main character, is just sort of blandly observing the whole story, and Gatsby's drive is lighting the whole story, and 
I always thought, like, if you're going to make a movie of it, you should just eliminate Nick. You should just not have the POV character. It should be Gatsby's movie. You should just make a movie about Jay Gatsby. But Gatsby is a, I mean, I, I don't know if a movie should be made of it at all, but Gatsby, the whole thing is, like, the mystery of him. You, you know, and so, like, uncovering the mystery of him, that he's just, like, this ordinary guy, you know, who kind of, you know, faked his way. You know, it's 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 hard to... You would lose that element, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I guess... This is a common thing in books. Like, uh, Brideshead Revisited, yes. uh, the main character, is a bland character, but he's surrounded by all of, like, effete and fascinating kind of, you know, British yeah. aristocracy people. Or, like, a separate piece, the main character, is not that interesting, but there's Phineas, you know, mm-hmm. his best friend, who, I like... I read it. Oh, okay. Like, it, it's kind of, like, the fascinating one. And I think this works for a book, because with a book, like, I think that it's easier... Like, this is one of those things in which, like, a movie's stories and book stories, like, it's going to be different advice. Because of the book, I think we need somebody who's more, possibly, like, on our level that we can identify with more intensely. Like, we can't identify with the Gatsby as a main character. Like, it's too big of a lift in a book. And also, like, even, like, I was reading, it was so interesting to reread the old, um, Chronicles of Prydain books to my daughters, like the Book of Three, the yeah. last Black Cauldron. I just read the first two to my daughter, and then she petered out, and so I've I've never read the last three. Um, they're good, but like, uh, uh, Taryn, the main character, is not much of a main character in the first book, the Book of Three. He kind of gets knocked out, and like Gwydion or whatever is the one who like defeats the Horned King. In the second book, even it's like the the big self sacrifice happens by Eladir. It doesn't happen by Taryn. Taryn's just kind of hanging around. Yeah. You know, while all this stuff is happening. And even, like, in the Narnia books, like, it's, like, Prince Caspian, Prince Caspian, who does all this stuff, and the kids are just kind of watching. Oh, yeah. Y- Prince you know? Caspian is a bizarrely structured novel. Yeah, I, but... I, 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 and so I think with all of these, and, like, and, you know, Aslan is one who makes stuff happen in all of those books, and the kids are just kind of, like, every, the main characters are just trying to catch up with what's going on, and I think that works in a book very well. Maybe this goes back to my whole thing about positive passivity, and maybe, like, it's easier to have a positively passive character in a book but like definitely true because reading a book is a such a passive experience uh i guess watching a movie is a passive experience too but there's there's something like so overwhelming of the senses of a movie maybe you want to have something that is more active but um i think uh the uh, protagonist the central character the person who through whose eyes you see the events it's true but he doesn't say the character who makes things happen interestingly yeah i would sort of disagree with his definition i think that often the, you know, I would say that Nick Carraway is not the protagonist. I mean, I guess it's how you want to define it, but I would say that sometimes you have a POV character through whose eyes we see the events, but that POV character is not necessarily the protagonist. I would say that in both versions of The Office, the temp is the POV character. It's the character through whose eyes we see the events, but no one would call him the protagonist of the show. So I would somewhat disagree with his definition here. His Even to the degree these are just glossary definitions, I'm not sure I... I'm not sure that the POV character and the protagonist are always the same. All right, then we get to another glossary definition, number 22, dramatic irony, a situation where one or more of the characters on the screen is ignorant of the circumstances known to us in the audience. Nobody uses the term irony in this way. I have heard this. This is not just a McKendrick thing. But but not in common usage. Yeah, this is sort of not the way these terms have come down to us today. He and Alanis Morissette should get together. <laughs> this is an old definition of this, dramatic irony, being what what he's saying here is what I would call an, an information superior position. The times when we know what is going on and the hero does not. 
And we've done a whole episode of this podcast on irony and all the many types of irony that are available to a writer. And this is one type of irony. I would not call this dramatic irony. I think that's too broad a term for this well, very specific it, thing. Like, what's an, a specific example of dramatic irony in the way that he means it? Well, I talk about Hitchcock's frenzy and about how it's one of the only Hitchcock movies in which we see the villain. It's almost like a Columbo episode. We see the villain commit all the horrific crimes and then the hero has no idea what's going on. And so when we then go to the hero, this poor falsely accused hero, classic Hitchcock falsely accused hero, in this case, we know exactly what trap he's going into, but he has no idea. And we are in an information superior position to him. This is what McKendrick would call dramatic irony. Hitchcock famously said that if you have a scene where some men are sitting around a table talking and there's a bomb that's underneath the table that suddenly goes off, then the scene isn't interesting if you just see them sitting around the table and then suddenly everything blows up. The scene is only interesting if you've shown us the bomb that's under the table that the men don't know about. Well, yeah, this is just the first scene of Touch of Evil, right? You, you right, see where the people the put is... a bomb in a car, and then we see Charlton Heston and the woman get in the car. They drive around. They're, they're in, like, the border town. They, they, they cross the border. They get out of the car. The car blows up. Yes. Right, but we knew there and was a bomb there all along, so we were feeling the tension. And they did not. Yes, right. which is great. I think that information superior scenes, you know, I talk about how Frenzy is one of my favorite Hitchcock films, but it's one of his least loved films. It is not a beloved Hitchcock film because we are not fully identifying with the hero because we are so far ahead of the hero. We are so far removed from the hero. We pity him more than we identify with him. But I think it can work beautifully. I think it's a great thing. I talk about the remake of Ocean's Eleven from 2001, how like Ocean's Eleven is constantly shifting us from information superior to information equal to information inferior, and how sometimes we know exactly what the heroes know. Sometimes we know more than the heroes know. Sometimes we know less than the heroes do. So frequently in Ocean's Eleven, the heroes will be up to something and we'll have to go like, what are they doing? Like, what's the game here? What's the con? And then we don't realize until the end of the scene what con they've been pulling off the whole time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're with them when they're reacting to something that is screwing up their con. And we are we know exactly as much about what's going on as they do. And sometimes we know something is going wrong for them long before they know something is about to go wrong. And we are seeing like, oh no, this thing is barreling towards our heroes they have no idea about. The best writing, I think, can shift back and forth between all three. I think that you're writing at a really high level if you can decide for each scene, do I want my reader to be information superior, information inferior, or information equal to the protagonist? And can I get fun material out of all three? Okay, so point 22 is not really about irony. It's about whether somebody is like, information superior, information equal, or information inferior. That is correct. Okay, basically you're saying, here's a tool that you can use. Yes. All right. So then we go to number 23. If you have a beginning, but you don't yet have an end, then you're mistaken. You don't have the right beginning. I think this is excellent advice. I think that this is something that screenwriters will say to each other, that all third act problems are really first act problems. You'll frequently get people going like, oh, I've got a great screenplay. It just doesn't have a third act yet. Or it just, it's got third act problems. And really there's no such thing as third act problems. Sort of this idea of dividing a screenplay into the first act, which is half an hour, the act two, which is an hour, and act three, which is half an hour. And people go like, oh, it's perfect except for the third act. All third act problems need to be solved in the first act. That you need to write it backwards. You need to be able to fix problems before they start. And if you're waiting until problems pop up, just solve them that's never going to work i think that this is depends on the author i mean the, the famously you know when authors talk about on twitter they talk about like pantsers versus plotters or whatever yes. right and so some people just like start writing 
and then they find their way to the solution, and it's that's the way that they do it. So I, I or, you know, C.S. Lewis, you know, famously, I start. Well, how did you start the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Well, I had a vision. I had an idea of like there was a fawn in the snow with an umbrella and it was carrying a package. That's what he had. He didn't have Aslan getting you know sacrificed in the stone table. He had this vivid image that impelled him to write. And this is one of those mechanical things that, from the point of view of like some people, maybe these plotters, and he, who even knows if it's true for them, but the the idea of like, you have to have the whole thing shining and perfect in your mind before no. you even begin it. No, that's, it not, what, weird. that's not what McKendrick well, yeah, is so saying If you have a beginning, but you don't yet have an end, then you're mistaken. You can't begin unless you know the end. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Well, then what does that mean, if that doesn't mean that? I think he's saying that if you've got a good beginning, but you don't have a good end, I think that that's what he means, is that if you've got a good beginning, but you don't have a good end, and it doesn't, you can't figure out how to end it, then you need to change the beginning, which is, I think, true. Yes, there are pantsers, but I think we already talked about this on the episode with Carrie and Sophie, that the difference between pantsers and plotters is that often if you pants your way through the first draft, then you have to plot your way through the second draft. And if you plot your way through the first draft, then you have to somehow find a way to retroactively pants your way through the second draft. Mm -hmm. And you have to, if you wrote without a lot of spontaneity the first time, you've then got to somehow restore spontaneity to it. If you write with nothing but spontaneity, then you have to go back and structure it as if you had a structure from the beginning. When you just read the rule, it just kind of thunders down from you as if on high. If you have a beginning, but you don't yet have an end, then you're mistaken. You don't have the right beginning. The rule is not useful because it just seems like this edict from on high that a, a, a beginner or somebody who's just trying to find their way and, and they, they're, grasp, they're reaching out for rules and they see this, like, oh, I wrote my beginning. It seems pretty good. Well, I haven't figured out the ending yet. Oh, geez, I'm mistaken? Like, I, I don't have the right beginning because I don't know my ending? Like, I, I, I just, think this I, is they, good. I think this is something that makes people feel good in that it's like, okay, you know, I've got a great beginning. It's, it's not leading to a good ending. I can't get to the end of it. I'm stuck. I'm going to abandon this. I'm going to walk away from it and realizing, like, you may have to edit as you go, I think is part of what he's saying. And you may have to go, like, oh, instead of just beating my head against the third act, once I realize I can solve it by changing something in the first act, I think that that is something that makes writers feel better. All right, let's move on to number 24. In movies, what is said, all caps, what is said may make little impression unless it comes as a comment or explanation on what we have seen happening. I mean, we sort of covered this in our last episode. Uh, this is sort of a repeat of an earlier rule, but how, you know, basically you should show and tell. And we talked about in our last episode about how everything everywhere at once completely lost me because they tried to tell some things and not show some things and show some things and not tell some things and I got hopelessly lost. Let's just keep skipping along. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to number 25. What is happening now is apt to be less dramatically interesting than what may or may not happen next. I think this is an excellent rule. I think that this is something that is very good to keep in mind. I, I talk about how this is how I originally discovered these rules because I wrote two different posts about this general rule of creating anticipation or a subconscious anticipation within scenes and having the whole scene be sort of driven by anticipation. And my beloved old commenter, the best commenter my blog ever had, J.S., who was a guy who would just call himself J.S. in my comments, who was just so helpful. I thanked him in my first book. Um, and as opposed to a certain other prolific commenter who I thanked in my second book and who I'm hosting this very podcast with. I think you, you dedicated the first book to J.S. I didn't dedicate it to him. I just, did I dedicate it to him? Let me see. 
didn't say dedication anywhere. Just said acknowledgments. Uh, acknowledgments, I would like to acknowledge the indefatigable assistance of my many blog commenters. Indefatigable. It, indefatigable? Yeah. Indefatigable assistance of many blog commenters who have helped me develop this advice over several years, especially Jacob Snyder, who, which was JS's real name. Anyway, but... Uh, uh, that's yeah, on the I, same pages to my beloved wife, Betsy. <laughs> and, and then right below it, oh yeah, and, my, and a blog commenter. <laughs> and then nobody else on that page. Look, <laughs> I like my wife, okay? But she's not, she's not a blog commenter. You know, she's the, yeah. she doesn't rise to that level of, of uh, appreciation. Anyway, what do you, how do you feel about this world, James? What is happening now is have to be less dramatically interesting than what may or may not happen next. That yeah, seems fine. Um, the, like, uh, I, the, you people, the, in, the, the characters in the scenes, you know, are, you, you know, they're planning for what's going to happen next. I mean, what characters are doing in scenes by definition is either reacting to what had just happened. Which is less do, interesting. They're, they're doing something. Which is Or better. they're planning to do something. Which is best. Yeah. But I think that you have to have all three kinds of scenes. You can't have them. I mean, if you say that's the worst, that's the middle, that's the best, I think there's got to be scenes in which they're kind of like catching their breath. And, you know, if they're but always frequently. just planning for what's happening next, I think that that might feel a little bit one note. We've I think... talked about, we talked about in the last episode how all three of your novels started from the germ of short stories and got longer instead of like most novels. Mm-hmm. I think there's a thousand page first draft somewhere that has to be cut down. And I think that when people are cutting things down, frequent scenes to cut are like, something horrible has happened. And let's have the scene where everybody realizes something horrible has happened and comments on it and reacts to it. And it's like, then when you're editing, you're like, I can just take all those out. I can just cut to what's going to happen. And then something horrible happens and then cut to what's going to happen next instead of, oh my God, look what just happened. Well, ideally and, it's all three, right? Yeah. The, the, something had just happened. Yeah. They're reacting to it, they're taking action for it, and they're anticipating the next thing that's going to happen. Right. So maybe that's the way to think about a scene. Maybe a scene, like a, a really healthy scene, has all three of these things happening. Yeah. Well, I talked about it at one point on the blog. I was watching Homeland, and they had, the CIA was following a tip, and they had agents who were being pursued, and then at the end of the episode, their agents are ambushed, and all of their agents are killed. And then in the next episode, we never get the scene where they find that their agents have been killed and never get the scene where they call the agents mothers and say, you know, I'm uh-huh. sorry, your son has been killed. And we never get any of that. They are up to their next thing in the next scene. And I remember just being really shocked by that when I saw it. I'm like, well, there's so much drama there. When writers are starting out, there's this sort of notion of drama and what is drama and is drama like, oh, my God, you know, this person's been killed. This is such a dramatic moment. This is like, what are we going to do? And it's like, well, even what are we going to do is better. But, you know, just like this person's been killed. I'm traumatized by that. It's just a killer of scenes. It's just not a good scene ever. So, yeah. But I think that that's, um, I think this is an excellent piece of advice. Okay. Let's go on to number 26. Number 26. What happens just before the end of your story defines the central theme, the spine of the plot, the point of view, and the best point of attack? And all of these are, like, put in all caps as though they've been <laughs> defined before. And some of them are kind of completely opaque, like, point of attack. Yes. Now, I should say that someone then turned his lectures into a whole book, which I have not read. I've just read these 41 rules. He probably defines them a little better in the book on filmmaking that was made of his lectures. But I think we can 
at one point I was saying to my daughter, like, now, have they told you in school about context clues? And she's like, oh, God, yes. <laughs> Clearly, she was sick to death of having been told about context clues over and over again. But I think we can figure out from context clues what, uh, what is going on here. The central point here, and I think this is a very good point, is that Blake Snyder says that you should have the statement of theme on page five of your screenplay. And I think that that is just terrible advice. But I think that this is a classic example of where he is wrong and none other than one Mapford is very right. That I talk about how you should start off with a false statement of philosophy, a false statement of theme, and then we find out the real statement of philosophy right before the end, exactly the way they do it here. Just before the end we, of your story defines the central theme. I don't think we discover, I don't think it's like presented for the first time at the end. I think it's hinted at or even stated out right by maybe an antagonist or a mentor character and the protagonist comes around to it. Like, oh God, I hate to say this, but in Star Wars, <laughs> the, we, the, the whole thing that Luke needs to know to blow up the Death Star is when Ben Kenobi puts the blast helmet on him when he's practicing with his lightsaber and saying, let go of your conscious feelings and your conscious thoughts and just feel it. Right. And that is the philosophy of it. It doesn't. It's not something that we only realize for the first time at the end. Somebody else says it first and it takes the whole rest of the movie for it to sink in. Well, at exactly the midpoint, that's the exact midpoint of the movie where he's practicing with the mm -hmm. lightsaber. One of the false statements of philosophy in that movie is when C-3PO calls him Sir Luke and he's like, mm -hmm. I'm not a knight. You know, and he's like, that's, you know, that's not what the story is going to be. I'm not going to turn into a knight. And so he's completely off. He's completely not understanding where he's going to end up as a character. But yeah, exactly at the halfway point, we get the close the blast shield on your helmet and that'll help you hit the thing. And then, of course, yeah, but the whole central theme, point of view and point of attack, whatever these things mean of that movie, is when he puts the guiding computer away to blow up the Death Star. That is, that is the moment when that whole movie snaps together, as we did a whole episode about that. We did a whole it's, episode. It's only set up by the fact that somebody states it earlier. So when you said, we only learn the real philosophy at the end, I'm saying it has to be set up earlier. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes it's a mentor that says it. Sometimes it may be, maybe it's an antagonist who says it. Maybe sometimes it's something that the hero offhandedly says in a moment of levity and then they realize that what they said as a joke earlier is true but i think it definitely it's not something you learn for the first time at the yeah. end well it's funny in silence of the lambs you get this false statement of philosophy which is that her boss tells her don't let him Electra get into your head and that's the one piece of advice she goes into this doing and then at the midpoint she finds out that Electra will only help her if he's allowed to get into her head and psychologize her and that she is resistant to doing this and doesn't want to do it. And then she and Lecter actually don't see each other for the entire like last third of that movie. But the finale is when she realizes that only by Lecter has forced her to admit to her rural past. And then she uses her rural past to find Buffalo Bill, how she realizes that the FBI is in the wrong town and that she knows actually where to go to find him. You've got the central theme, which is, you know, quid pro quo, essentially, that, you know, you have to, as Nietzsche would say, you have to, you know, look into the abyss. Starts off as something that is explicitly said you can't do or shouldn't do, and then it's something that you have to do, and then it's, and then you find out at the end how this helps and how it all comes together. You have to make yourself vulnerable. Have to make yourself vulnerable, which is the one thing she's told not to do. Right. So that is a case in which, like, yeah, you don't learn it at the end. You learn it, you know, at the middle, and then it, you come to see how it's true. Yeah. But, uh, but I think that this is good general advice that, and we did a whole episode about this with a lot of what he was saying 
it, the Michael Arndt is saying in that wonderful video that you should watch on Vimeo of Kick-Ass Endings with Michael Arndt is the same as what he's saying here. What happens just before the end of your story defines the central theme, the spine of the plot, the point of view, and the best point of attack. All right, okay, so number 27, make sure you've chosen the correct point of attack. Oh, here we go again. Common flaw, colon, tension begins to grip too late. Perhaps the story has to start at a later point and earlier action should be fed in during later sequences. Well, this is like what I was saying before about the apartment. The apartment could have begun when he is first approached. If we had begun there, the tension would have begun to grip too late. That early part of the story of the story would not have been gripping. I think this is one of those pieces of advice that's definitely uh, more filmic than for books. Because for books, I think we distrust them if they start with too much conflict. There's often like hmm. a wind-up with books. Harriet the Spy doesn't start with oh, things have become untenable for her. And, and, like, people are, like, figuring out that she's writing mean things. Um, or, like, a Fellowship of the Ring just starts with this long wind-up about Bilbo's birthday party. I remember reading, like, an adventure story called, like, Tom Swift, like, in his adventure among the stars, and uh -huh. I remember, like, as a kid. And I remember not being able to get past the first scene precisely because the first scene was an action scene. Yeah. And I didn't like it because I didn't care about this character. I didn't care about anything that was going on, but like in a book, it's different. I think if like we kind of have to have this, like I don't know, Harry Potter. It, it doesn't. It just kind of begins kind of more low key. I think with a book, you kind of have to begin low key. In a, in a, in a movie, you can begin like the beginning of you know okay. The, the, let's just go back to it, like the Mission Impossible Three, which it starts with like the flash forward to mm -hmm. you know he's got you know Tom Cruise's wife. You know, there and he's threatening her. I'm gonna kill her unless you tell me where the rabbit's foot is. Whatever. Oh my god, what a great, compelling beginning to a movie. But I just, I find that like with books, we don't trust it so much. If you're asking us to invest so much so early in people that we haven't even met or begun to care about yet, I would say that Harry the Spy, things have gotten pretty untenable. That her spying has already gotten a little bit out of control by the first scene. We don't begin with her getting her journal or deciding to spy or doing her first thing on her route. The thing's been going on for a while. But I would certainly agree that with the Tolkien books, we begin very early in, in a book, or, or the Fellowship of, three, of the Ring or and The Hobbit. But, you know, or like we just like see people going on in their ordinary yeah. lives. We know that there's some adventure is going to happen, but we kind of, because reading a book is a more leisurely activity, yeah. I don't think we trust it if it throws us into high conflict immediately. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that uh, that books can begin shorter and that because you've got this wonderful thing called voice in a book and you can just like, if you've got a good voice, then it can describe anything and it can describe very undramatic things in a very lively way, which you really don't have that option as a screenwriter. You don't have, you can't make undramatic things as lively as you can in a book. I am glad that Harry the Spy does not begin with her getting her first journal. I'm glad that, that Harry the Spy picks up a little bit further into the action. And, you know, certainly with Ogali, I was really shocked when I read that to my kids recently how quickly Ogali is out of the picture that I had remembered there being, you know, like scene after scene of her and Ogali mm -hmm. loving each other and having this appreciative relationship. But Ogali is knocked out of that book very quickly. And more of the book is about missing Ogali than being with her. So I think it's not entirely unhelpful for novelists to think about this. And certainly, you know, the apartment doesn't begin with an action scene. It doesn't go like, oh, who's punching who? But we're just beginning a little deeper into the story to just try to, we don't want the tension to grip too late. We're beginning when the tension begins to grip, which I think is a good general idea. Okay, James, let's go ahead and cut off there. I think this is going to be our first ever three-part episode. Let's go ahead and end on that rule, and we will pick up with the next rule, and we are going to have our first three-part episode. Are you excited? Very much so. Very much so. Okay, everybody, 
we are, and I promise we're not going to parcel these things out over six months like we usually do. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and end part two here. We're going to pick up with part three next time. This is exciting. I think this is a lot of fun. I'm enjoying doing this. We will see you next time, America. Good night. Wait, you're not going to tell them to, you know, go forth and multiply or whatever you usually say. What do you usually say? Do, do no evil. What do you usually say? I'm just kind of enjoying hearing you twist in the wind. <laughs> live long and prosper. Okay, live long and prosper, everybody. Okay, goodbye. That, that, that was more satisfying <laughs> than me saying go and sin no more. Go and sin. Go and sin no more. I knew it. I knew it was something like that. Okay, now goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com.